We are united in grief. We are united in grief. We are united in anger. We are united in anger. I'm here because I've been biking for a long time in the city, and I've just been getting like more and more scared, I guess. We will not stop riding. It is a very intense thing to sit next to the body of a 28-year-old killed the day before on a bicycle in Brooklyn, and then get off and get on your bike as I do every day and ride seven miles to work. Mayor de Blasio, we demand protection. The mayor talking about, oh, he's doing his job, he's doing his job. You're not doing your job. Put a pep in your step and let's get this done. Let, next thing you know, it's, it's going to be more deaths in the blink of an eye. This is the War on Cars. I'm Aaron Napperstack, and I'm here with Sarah Goodyear and Doug Gordon. Hello. Hey. 20 people riding bicycles have been killed this year on the streets of New York City. That is double the number of bike fatalities in all of 2018. People are scared, people are angry, and they're demanding that New York City's mayor do something about it. That audio you heard at the top, that was recorded in Washington Square Park here in New York on July 9th, 2019, just this summer. The war on cars was there, and so were over a thousand people. They held signs, they chanted, they made their demands known, and then everybody just laid down with their bikes and sat in silence. What was clear in Washington Square Park is that people are sick and tired of it. They're pissed. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Advocacy, activism, change making. And if you're out there fighting the war on cars, what can you learn from other social movements? Who are the right targets of protests? What are the right tactics? Is it lying down at a die-in? Is that the best way to win hearts and minds? Or are there better ways for regular citizens to break the death grip that the automobile holds over our cities, our communities, and our lives? Okay, so to give people a good sense of what this die-in event was all about, we need to go back to Monday, June 24th, 2019. That was the day that a truck driver ran over and killed a 20-year-old bicycle messenger, Robin Heitman, on 6th Avenue in Manhattan. And as so often happens in these cases, the driver was ticketed for some minor violations, but not for killing a human being. And then the next day, the NYPD cracked down on bike commuters on the very block where Heitman had been killed. Yeah, and it, the sad thing is that that was just the beginning of what would turn into a really shocking week. Um, three days later, on June 27th, the same day that hundreds of people were participating in a memorial ride for Robin Heitman, a teenage driver killed 54-year-old Ernest Askew, who was riding a bike in Brownsville. And then four days later, July 1st, a cement truck driver killed 28-year-old Deborah Freelander in Bushwick, Brooklyn, 
And that was the third bike fatality in a week, and Devers was the 15th death of the year. And once again, you know, in response to all these deaths, NYPD cracked down on cyclists. On July 5th, an NYPD officer in a police SUV literally ran over a man on a city bike in the East Village for, quote, the reckless activity of going through red lights and wearing earphones. Penalty being run over. With the mangled bike lodged in the SUV's wheel well, bystanders captured the entire so thing on video. To use whatever means necessary wow. to stop you, okay? Okay. For, and, it, and, that's, that, and that's for your safety, because you are riding this. This is for your safety, yes. This is for your safety. Do you understand what the amount of that force for the entire tire came off? My entire rear... So in case that's not clear, he's saying, do you understand the amount of force my entire tire came off my entire rim came off yeah right. but it was done for his safety Aaron it was yeah. done for his safety it's but so there's there, and you can hear the people are just laughing in disbelief it's literally like US military policy in Vietnam you know we ha we had to destroy the village to save it like we've got to like get rid of these cyclists so they stop getting killed on our streets so as these deaths were happening over the course of the summer I think we all had the experience of just sitting there and watching in in horror. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all we all spend too much time on Twitter, and you'll be on Twitter, and all of a sudden you'll see another death come through. Right, and and it was also like it kept happening, like like on the memorial ride or vigil for one dead cyclist. Literally, like an hour later, there would be another dead cyclist, and then at that cyclist memorial ride or vigil, the next person would get killed. And also to know, I think, because we do this work all the time, what, that the response would be almost nothing. And it would be that ridiculous ticketing. And there would yeah, be worse than nothing. Actually, right. It's right. worse than nothing. It's antagonistic and actually makes people less safe. And so, uh, you know, I, I was both shocked, of course, because I, I always say you should never lose that sense of shock. Otherwise, just get out of <laughs> get out of what you're doing. But just incredibly angry. And one of the things I feel like when I'm out riding my bike and I think, you know, most people, when they ride bikes in the city, they're riding on their own. They're out there just commuting or doing errands. They're by themselves, right? And I always just get very uh, emotional when I think about these people who are just like me, riding their bikes out there by themselves, and then they die alone in this terrible way. I mean, it's impossible not to think about it. I, I actually stopped riding my bicycle this summer. I, I really limited where I would go, when I would go out, and I rode much less. And I was struck by like the coldness of the response to these killings. I mean, it seemed different in a way where, you know, when reporters interviewed the NYPD cops who were ticketing cyclists at the site of Robin Heitman's death, the police officer who they talked to literally said like, yeah, she, you know, she was riding outside the bike lane, she screwed up. And then when people were having a vigil um, and a press conference after Deborah Freelander's deaths. The cement truck drivers from the same company that killed Deborah Freelander, they rolled up and started yelling at people who were just trying to have a memorial for their friend, basically yelling like, it was her fault, it was her fault. So there was just this like, it just seemed like, it seemed more like a war out there. Like yeah. we're on two sides and we're not even gonna like, you know, we're killing you and it's your fault. Well, so it's like a war. You have to dehumanize the enemy. Yeah. And I think that, that that I felt that as well. Yeah. And and but one thing that that I want to make a point about is that um, is that the people who 
have been dying this year represent just an incredible cross-section of New Yorkers. And to sort of lump them all into this category as cyclists who can be dehumanized right. Right. is ridiculous. They're not some special class of person. Be- being killed by a car is one of the great you know, bastions of diversity in New York uh, yeah. right now. Sadly. It's, like it's, a, it's a real that equal is true. opportunity uh, realm. And, you know, what, what was actually weird about this spate of cycling deaths is that last year New York City saw a record low number of bike fatalities, right? So that last year there were 10 bike fatalities. It was the lowest number of bike fatalities that we've ever seen since the city started keeping track. You know, and right now, as of this episode, we we have 20 or 21, depending on how you count. You so know, was that bikes. just an anomaly? I, I think it was actually an anomaly. I think uh, the cycling fatality rates usually hover at 17 to 25 per year. And it sounds so awful to be that like dry and statistical when we're talking about real people. But I th- actually think the way that we should be looking about it is that it has been permanently dangerous and the city hasn't been doing enough. And they lucked into a, a safe year last year with just 10 people. We should push back a little bit on that. Just that, you know, the the rate of cycling, the number of cyclists has true. really gone up in the last 10 years. So, I mean, it, it, and this is a weird phenomenon, too, where there have been all these terrible fatalities. But actually, like, it is safer to bike in New York City, statistically speaking. So I, I was actually out of town when this die-in happened. How did it come about? Like, what was the spark for it? Well, I think the fact that there were three deaths inside of a week... But there was something about when when Deborah Freelander died um, that that seemed big and and that that prompted this this demonstration, right? I mean, it just there was something about maybe it was number fifteen. It was the third in a week. I mean, it felt like like a murder spree or something. It was crazy. Yeah, I think it was the it was the fact that so many happened inside of a week. Um, you know, fifteen is a easy number. You know, for the press, for everybody. Um, I think the fact that was five more than 10, which was 10 was all we had last year. Um, And I think there was something about Devra. She was a young artist, like really on the precipice of of an incredible career and already doing this amazing stuff. So um, I think all of that together combined to make this sense that something had to be done. Yeah, it felt like a crisis and Doug and I both were there. And we uh, were talking to people. One of the very first and most intense people I spoke with at the die-in was there because of Deborah Freelander. Yeah, so my name's Nigel Savage, and I'm the CEO of Chazon, which is the largest environmental organization in the Jewish community. We work closely with transportation alternatives over many years to rally the Jewish community behind protected bike lanes. Um, But I didn't know Deborah Freelander, and I don't know her parents but her parents are members of my synagogue. And in Jewish tradition, between the time that somebody dies and the time that they're buried, you have shamrim, you have two people who who sit guard over the body. And so through a strange accident, my wife and I were the shamrim sitting next to Deborah's body last Wednesday morning before her funeral. And it is a very intense thing to sit next to the body of a 28-year-old killed the day before on a bicycle in Brooklyn and then get off and get on your bike as I do every day and ride seven miles to work. What I want to say is that I, 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 I thank all of the people in this administration and previous administrations in the city who have worked for protected bike lanes and to make the city safer for cyclists. So yes, yeah, so that, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> I mean, 
it's, it's right. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to do. That's a beautiful tradition, and it's just very sad. I was struck by his pivot from, you know, I was sitting with this woman's body, and this is terrible, and we need to change it. And I want to thank all of the people in this administration for what they've done. And I was just like, man, I appreciate that that is where you're at but that is not where I'm at. Like, I don't feel like thanking this administration right now. No, and I understand the instinct, certainly from someone who just went through what he went through, but I think that gets to the fundamental question we want to ask in this episode, which is, should we stop being polite? You know, should we take more drastic, political, overtly political, and almost theatrical... More disruptive. Um, right. Disobedient. Uh, tactics to change a system that is killing people... 20, 30, not to mention the tens of thousands of people who are killed across this country, uh, you know, by cars. So I, I think some of the momentum for this die-in came from younger people who do have that kind of energy and sort of a feeling of less to lose and less reason to be polite. And, um, and I think that energy that came out of the bike messenger community, which has always been super strong in New York since the 70s and 80s, um, was part of what was driving this protest culture. They call me Flaco. Flaco? Yeah. Why are you out here? Because three, two of my friends have died. Arilla Lawrence and Robin Heitman. I got ran over by, and killed by two, two different box trucks. One was a gasoline tanker, which Arilla Lawrence got killed by, and then Robin got killed by a box truck. And none of them had got yet prosecuted for that. The one that got that killed right by Heitman, Heitman on 23rd Street and 6th Avenue, all he got was slapped with five tickets and let go. This is 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 it's too much. And then and this on the other day on social media, a cop ran over a city bike person with his car. Like so, what's next? So we got to worry about. It's bad enough we got to worry about cars. Now we got to worry about cops trying to run us over too as well. So it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. Yeah, Flacco really gets to it, man. Like, it, you know, the thing of like, they're driving so fast to go nowhere. You know, they're going so, they're, they're doing that. And they, that's more important to them than a person's life. That sums it up. It makes no sense. Um, and I think Flacco raises the question when you have this, this frustration, this simmering rage that just bursts, like, is a die-in the right tactic does it you know are these the right ways to move the needle yeah I mean you know on a personal note one of the first things I ever did in bike advocacy in like 2005 the executive director of transportation alternatives asked me to write an article for the magazine about four cyclists who had all been killed in quick succession and it just felt very similar to this uh, moment right now. And, you know, after those, those four deaths, you know, there were vigils, there were, I don't know if there was a die-in specifically, but there was a lot of activism like this, like sort of mourning and grief and public displays. And, um, you know, some stuff got done, like some, some advocacy came out of that, some changes were made to the streets, but there was something about this event and it might just be like, I've been around too long. And it, it felt like, man, like, done this before like this sure like this event's bigger it's more diverse it's more powerful in many ways but also it just feels like we are doing the same things over and over again but i i don't know i i actually think that the die-in is a great tactic and 
And I think so because having seen it be used by ACT UP and, uh, you know, during the AIDS crisis and um, what it does is it makes an invisible community visible. And it, I think that it can really humanize and elevate the people who are concerned and who are scared for their lives into something that can't be ignored. Well, and the ACT UP thing came up right away. I mean, there were definitely people at the event who were thinking about that model of, of protest and well, advocacy. I mean, not for nothing. We were in Greenwich Village, you know, a hotbed of political advocacy for generations. I'm Maribel. I am here because um, for the die-in, and I think it remi- it also reminds me of what the AIDS crisis, you know, in the days of the ACT UP. I hate the reason why we have to do this, and I but I get it. it How does it remind you of the ACT UP activism of the 80s and 90s? Because they used to do die-ins. They used to do die-ins, and and that's how change happened. I mean, that was the beginning of, of like, let's let's take the streets back, as it applies to to, to the die-in for the cycling, right? Let's take the streets back. What do you think we could do to make make it safer for cyclists? Um, Well, you know, (laughs) get rid of the cars really get rid of the speeding cars and do more enforcement, bike lane enforcement, speed limit restrictions, uh, the trailers, the the 18-wheeler restrictions, things like that. Enforcement. Enforcement is what's lacking. So she had me at get rid of the cars, and she kind of lost me at enforcement is what's lacking, (laughs) right? Yeah, I used to think that enforcement was was really important and I have to say that I've I've come to a place where I, I feel like the fact that we really can't trust the police to act in a responsible way uh, just means that enforcement it, it can't be the the main thing that we're looking for well and because not to mention the the racial component of <laughs> enforcement and how it can be applied disproportionately but the um, the cops are part of the cultural problem. They think it's okay to just roam around the city in these massive armored tanks that we call sport utility vehicles, and eh, you see a cyclist go through a red light, run them over, or park in a bike lane to go get your lunch. Um, they are part of the windshield perspective, the cultural change that we need to fight. And a lot of the people at the event were actually there to protest the police because they feel like while they're riding around on their bicycle in New York City, they've been mistreated by police. Um, I'm here because I've been biking for a long time in the city, and I've just been getting like more and more scared, I guess. And I also feel like lately I've been, I've gotten a few tickets, um, and I feel like the cops are targeting the wrong people. They're supposed to be, like, this year we've had more deaths, um, as you know, because that's why we're here. And I just got a ticket last week for going through a stop sign and it was because I was avoiding a car that was parked in the bike lane and the cops took me to jail because I didn't have my license on me. They cuffed me, they called backup and there were six cop cars and like two cops in each car. So that's why I'm just a little sick of everything. That that was a woman named Maria that um, we spoke to at the event and it really raises this question of like, you know, who should we be targeting at these protests? Like, should we be talking more directly to the police? Are they actually the problem? Does Mayor Bill de Blasio even have control over the police? I mean, I was just listening to Maria's clip and thinking, 
So she got taken to jail because yeah. she didn't have identification on her, her license. And six cops showed up in probably no fewer than two or three vehicles. Maria's biggest mistake was not running over a cyclist in her car because then they would have sent one officer to respond and they would have patted her on the back and sent her home. I mean, you can see why people are frustrated. That's the response that they give to not having identification, but not the response they give to the actual murder or unintentional you know, manslaughter of killing other people. It's, it's absurd. Yeah, and so, you know, should we be making the NYPD the target of these protests? And, and what would that look like? Well, I think it's easier, obviously, to make it about the mayor because the mayor ostensibly runs the city, runs and controls the police department, even though we all know that that's not really true in a lot of big cities like New York. But um, yes, the police are a huge part of the problem. And the fact that the mayor has not sought to rein them in on this issue specifically is, is something that has to change. I had a feeling that this event should have been directed at the police instead of the mayor. Now, like Bill de Blasio is sort of feckless. He was actually in Iowa at the time of this. He wasn't even in the city. And that there was this opportunity to direct our anger and our requests and demands at the police who were there. They were like surrounding the park. They were, there were bike cops who were, instead of riding their bikes, they literally pulled their bicycles off of a truck. That is the irony. You never see bike cops, say, patrolling Central Park. You only ever see them used for like riot control. They literally using their bicycles as barricades so that people wouldn't flood out into the street. So it was like they're using their bicycles to protect the cars on Fifth Avenue. You know, so that people couldn't interfere with the cars. I mean, we could have been like, what are you guys doing? Yeah, I mean, I I hear you. But the thing is, is that feels really, really unsafe to people, right? Especially anyone who is not white in this town is, you know, expressing. But there were a thousand people like it was, you know, it was like a lead, an executive director at the at the megaphone who could have just been like, NYPD, we have a message for you. I mean, if there's ever a time when you could have pulled that off. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that I think you're right. But I think that actually um, we we do need elected officials who are going to intercede with the police. I, I, I guess I just I don't see. I don't see direct action on the police as being something that is going to end well. I'm sorry, but I, you know, I, I just, I, it feels no, so. No, it's very scary. It I mean, feels it's, so, it's scary. They are It's armed. not just that it's scary. It feels so hopeless. I mean, I, I just, I've lived in this town my entire long life, pretty much. And I just have never seen the NYPD change. I've seen the civilian administration of this city change and put more priority on on human beings occasionally over cars, but I have not seen the NYPD change, and they just seem to be getting more and more dangerous and arrogant and disregarding of the people that they're supposed to serve and protect. I'm uh, Aaron. I'm Matt. What do you think needs to happen to make streets safer for bikes in New York? So I definitely think enforcement is too late. So asking the police or DOT to do enforcement I think is too late. I think we need uh, infrastructure, street designs that make it easy to do the right thing for everyone. Um, I also think like with that comes a change in culture in how we get around. Um, so part of that is changing the car culture of, of that being the default. How do you think we do that? 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's that, that's the hard one. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you think of anything, get back to us. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I think that's exactly it. It's like this is just transportation management. If you need a lot of police to manage your transportation system, there's something fundamentally broken about your transportation system. Like transportation management is not a policing function. You yeah. know, like if the thing doesn't work without a bunch of cops, like pulling people over and writing tickets and harassing cyclists, then your thing is designed wrong. Right. So one of the ways you do that is to disincentivize driving by pricing driving and pricing parking so that it's not the default. The other way is that you improve the public transportation system and you invest in the public transportation system so that it's reliable enough that people can use it and that it seems like a, an easier, better option right. than driving. And, 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 this, I, isn't, and yeah. this isn't rocket science. No. Like we know what the solutions are, but and the question keep that keep, we keep coming back to is like, how? How, 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 well, how I, do we make this change happen? And I, I think that's w what the die-in sort of accomplishes, right? Because when a few people die in the span of a week, that motivates people to get out and do something about it. But you're not necessarily, it's like, what do we want? Congestion pricing. Mm. When do we want it? After thoughtful review in Albany by the Senate <laughs> and Assembly and a debate in the New York City press and a secret committee that will set the pricing. You know, like it doesn't motivate people in that way. So I think a just more directed anger focus. De Blasio, you have blood on your hands. Okay, but but you know? was this that? I mean, like, look, like when, you know, students sat in at a Woolworth's lunch counter in 1960, like to protest separate but equal. They didn't sit in at a, you know, park across the street from the Woolworths with police permission. They sat in like at the Woolworths lunch counter and, you know, at great personal risk, great physical peril, demonstrated with their bodies like how they want the world to be. We can sit here. We can use this space. It needs to just happen. Like people need to go out in the streets and be like, we're on bikes. We're traffic. This is our space. Get out of the way. And, and that's critical mass, which existed in San Francisco and here in New York and other cities for a long time. It was actually dormant here in New York and then got relaunched as a result of this terrible summer. And there so have been it, it is happening. There have been two, maybe three rides by the time that this is released where people just took over the streets and um, showed what they wanted, which is say streets for bicycles. I think we have to decide, do we want to be comfortable in our activism or do we want to risk something? And I think this is a problem I've had with activism in the United States my whole life is that I think people want, even if they get arrested, they want it to be sort of like on a timetable, like I'm going to get arrested <laughs> right. and I'll right, be right. released by by dinner time, and I can say that I got arrested. And, and I worry that there's that strain of American protest culture, even in direct action, that it's that it it isn't really feeling like it's risking something. And I wonder if we are ever going to get there. And I think that was what was different about ACT UP is, is there was a sense in an entire community that we are dying and they were dying. And it was, and that was what gave that its power is the stakes were really, really, really high. Well, there's a fundamental difference, which is that, you know, people with HIV or AIDS were actually dying, like you said. And if I don't want to die on my bicycle, I just don't ride my bicycle. And so there is, like you said, the stakes become that much lower. And right, like a person who is black, African-American, and wants to not be harassed cannot just shed that skin and decide the next day to not be black.
Um, so, so what do we, like, did this do anything? What did this accomplish? Well, it certainly uh, raised awareness. There was tons of press coverage all over the place. So that's number one. Um, it got the de Blasio administration to act. Uh, they had been issuing statements and press releases, but this time around, de Blasio, two weeks later, had a press conference where he stood there with the commissioner of the Department of Transportation, and they released a plan called the Greenway for Bicycling, which increased the number of protected bicycle lanes that they're doing per year and added other elements to the safety program that the city is pursuing. So it, it did achieve a policy goal in that regard. But what's next? Because how do we sustain the energy of this and how do we how do we change awareness, which is what really needs to happen in like a deep way, not just a, you know, I saw it on the evening news last night. I think it's like water over rocks. You know, it's just like persistent wearing down and changing the thing slowly. And I believe that. And I do think it's not going to just be die-ins and it's not going to just be voting for a certain politician. It's multiple fronts that we have to be working on to wear down this incredibly persistent car culture that is killing people. And I think it's happening. And hundreds of thousands of people around the world are working to to do that, to say it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to die like this. We refuse to die like this. Hey, thanks for listening to The War on Cars. Thanks to everyone who took the time to talk to us at the Washington Square Die-In. We will put links to all of the articles, videos, and other things we mentioned in our show notes. And please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because that's how people find us. And we would love to hear from you. Write us with any comments or suggestions at thewaroncars at gmail.com. We depend on your contributions to produce this podcast. And you can support us on Patreon by going to thewaroncars.org and clicking donate. We'll send you stickers, T-shirts, and other nice rewards, and you'll be among the first to hear exclusive audio content. Also, we have a new reward just launched. We cranked out a very limited run of War on Cars buttons. So if you act fast and donate at the $10 a month special ops level, you'll get a limited edition button and a set of stickers. Thanks very much. We'd like to thank our top sponsors, including Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Vicaro and White in New York City, Huck and Elizabeth Finney, Lee H. Herman Jr., and Timothy Buck. This episode was produced by Jamie Kaiser and recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. I am Aaron Napperstack. I'm Sarah Goodyear. I'm Doug Gordon, and this is The War on Cars. So what, why are you out here? It's so basic. Design better roads so people don't die. That's it, end of story. Wrap it up, let's go home.